Father, we thank you truly for the opportunity to dive into your word. God, we have already worshipped you through the observance of baptism, through the songs that have been sung, through giving of our, of our tithes and our offerings, Lord. Father, now we come to the place in our worship service where we desire to hear from your very word, this word that you have preserved for generations, Lord, for thousands of years. Lord, we ask that you would speak in spite of a foolish and frail servant, that your word would go forth and that mine would be stopped. Father, that you would encourage us by the power of your word, that you would convict us, that you would challenge us, and that you would also comfort us, Lord. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you have your Bible with you, and I hope that you do, please take and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles in the backs of the pew in front of you. Feel free to take one of those and borrow it. Or if you don't have a copy of Scripture that you own, feel free to keep that Bible as our gift to you, just as a present from Bethany to you, and we will have more Bibles and plug them into those spots. If you prefer to use a tablet or your phone or to follow along on the screens, that's perfectly fine as well. However you're accessing the Word of the Lord, I would ask, if you're physically able, would you please stand out of reverence for the public reading of God's holy word as we look together at Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. We will read through verse 21, at which time I will say this is the word of the Lord. I encourage you to respond with the phrase, thanks be to God. Let's look together now at the word of the Lord, Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So they might accuse him. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him. And he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. 
I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. This week begins a sermon series, a new sermon series for us, in which we're going to spend 12 weeks in the Gospel of Matthew studying some of the 12 different teachings that Jesus offers to us on his way to the cross. And so it will lead us up to Easter and carry us through the resurrection and even the Sunday after. And we will spend time learning how Jesus predicts his own death and burial and resurrection, the things that he taught his disciples leading up to that event. And this morning we begin here in Matthew chapter 12. We'll be in Matthew chapter 12 for the next few weeks. And there's three separate confrontations that take place in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus is accused by the Pharisees of violating the Sabbath in the verses we looked at today. Next week he's suggested to be in league with Satan and then they demand a cosmic sign. But Jesus responds to each of these requests, each of these controversies by proving he's the Lord of the Sabbath, by proving he's a divine servant of justice, and he is the spirit-empowered inaugurator of the kingdom of God. He is the one who inaugurates the coming of the kingdom of God. He says that it begins now. The kingdom is here and the kingdom is now. And so we will see how Jesus teaches these things over the next few weeks. But today, he proves that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Folks, this is a very peculiar text in the sense of what the Pharisees are doing to Jesus. We learn from the Gospel of Mark that very commonly Jesus would go to the synagogues on the Sabbath and then he would possibly return to Peter's mother-in-law's house. He was there in Capernaum and he would go and stay with some of the homes of some of the disciples. And so you have to imagine they went to the synagogue that day and they, they heard a reading of the text. And after they heard the reading, they went back home and then they went for a stroll through the grain fields. And now there were commands in Leviticus that you left the edges of your field unharvest, unharvested for those who may be poor or may be lacking. And it was an intentional instruction that you did not harvest all of your field. So as they're walking through these various paths of the grain fields, they've been walking and talking and Jesus has been teaching them. And I can think of the disciples just very innocently. Man, it's been a long day. We've been walking a while and we're walking through a grain field. So they pick up stalks of grain. They separate out the chaff and they they put the grain in their hands and they they grind it up and they begin to pop some in their mouth like popcorn or some other kind of snack as they go along. It's their trail mix. You know, this is not work. And this is not something that the Pharisees would have regularly looked out for. They would not have been wandering around the grain fields going, is there anybody getting grain today? All right, who's out here working? They were not looking around and hunting people down. There was a heightened expectation because it was Jesus, because it was his apostles. So as you imagine Jesus and his apostles walking around through the grain fields, there's just this random crew of people. If you guys right here, this whole row, including Colby, yes, even you, Colby, I need y'all to stand up, okay? Stand up for just a moment, all right? Because you just got to get a visual of what's happening here. All right, so I want y'all to kind of 
stay about four or five steps behind me, but just follow behind me. There's a crowd of Pharisees that are following Jesus and his disciples, watching everything that they do. You've got like take notes as you go, guys. You're watching, you're taking notes. Mason, I know you're in the back, but you've got to be looking. You've got to be seeing. And so we're just wandering around the grain fields, and this is a common occurrence for Jesus. There's, there's a whole cluster of people walking behind him, scrutinizing everything that he does. If he walks over and says, hey, to Gary, hey, Gary, how you doing? What's going on? Pharisees are going to notice and take note, and they're going to go, he spoke to Gary, but he didn't say, hey, to Vicky, we can get him on that later. I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's something else we can get him on. He pushed Ted. I saw it. That was me. He took Greg's glasses and moved them to the next few. This Jesus guy, something's wrong with him. And they just scrutinize everything he does. He started with his left foot, not his right foot. Oh, he put too much pressure on his right foot. He jumped. That might be. You can't jump on the Sabbath. Thank you so much, guys. You you guys can walk back through. But literally, everywhere Jesus went, there's a crowd of people following along behind him. And his microphone's... I'm just going to be honest with you guys. I, I hadn't really planned on walking around anymore, so we'll just stick with this one, okay? I don't know what's going on. This microphone just hates me some weeks. So Jesus is walking around through the grain fields innocently. People probably did this every Sabbath. Every time there was a harvest, the edges of the field were left unharvested on purpose. But there's a crowd of people scrutinizing every word that Jesus says, every action that he takes. And so I want you to be aware that this is not normal The Pharisees are acting very odd and very peculiar. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody? Sorry, it's just natural. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody, and no matter what you say, they find the negative or the wrong? That's the conversation the Pharisees are having with Jesus. If Jesus said, hey, Clayton, you look nice today. Clayton, if he were a Pharisee, would go, what do you mean today? You mean I don't look nice every day? What are you talking about? How come you're telling me I'm ugly all the time and all I do is look nice one day? Ali, Clayton, I was just trying to give you a compliment, brother. I, I, don't, I don't know what's going on. This is the relationship between Jesus and the Pharisees. It can be exhausting, can it not? It's absolutely infuriating when somebody is scrutinizing and finding what's wrong in everything that you say. But it starts from a corrupt heart. You have to know who Jesus is before you can understand and relate to him correctly. The Pharisees don't want to acknowledge who Jesus really is. They don't want to acknowledge that he's bringing the kingdom here and now. They expect a different kind of kingdom. And I want you to know your relationship to Jesus determines exponentially how you understand what he says. You can read God's word all of your life, but if you have hardness in your heart, And you are negative and scrutinizing everything that Jesus says. This isn't real. This isn't true. No way he did that. No way he said this. What does he mean by that? Does that mean i got to do this? If you approach the Bible in that way, then you and I are just as easily lured into the trap the Pharisees fell into. Instead of knowing who Jesus is, we end up scrutinizing everything Jesus said or did. And you miss Jesus altogether. But Jesus gives them a lesson on what the Sabbath really is, what the Sabbath really means. And there's a video that I've watched from a group of people called the Bible Project. We've watched a video of theirs before in this service. I'd like to show it right now, and I want you guys to listen and pay attention. There's so much detail in this video, and it gives us the picture of what Sabbath is really supposed to be. 
What the Pharisees missed all along, but what Jesus knew and was trying to correct. Let's watch together. The number seven is a big deal in the Bible. Yeah, in biblical Hebrew, the word seven is connected to the idea of fullness or completeness. And that's something we all long for, but don't often experience. Instead, we find ourselves working endlessly, fighting back chaos with no real rest. Yes. Now keep all that in mind as we turn to Genesis 1 in the Bible. It begins with darkness and disorder, but then God speaks to bring about light and order so that life can flourish. And this happens over the course of six days. Each day is marked with the phrase, there was evening and there was morning. But on the seventh day, something special happens. God stops and rests. Right. Creation is brought to its completion on the seventh day. And that phrase, there was evening and there was morning, it doesn't appear on day seven. It's like a day with no end. On the seventh day, God's presence fills his creation. The land provides for all of God's creatures, including humans, who are appointed to rule the world with God forever. Kings and queens of the seventh day rest. I can get into that. But the humans are deceived by a dark power, and they forfeit that rest. They're exiled into the wilderness, where they have to work as slaves to the land. Until they die and return to the dust from which they came. But God wants to restore humanity back to that seventh day rest. So he chooses to give the family of Israel that experience of ultimate rest so they can share it with others. But how? They're in Egypt, slaves to an oppressive empire who's grinding them into the dust. So God confronts Egypt and he liberates the Israelites, taking them through the darkness and chaos on the way to the promised land. Now while they're on their way, they find themselves in the wilderness. It's easy to get lost. Life is a struggle. They're not in the land of rest yet. But while they're on the way, God invites them in the wilderness to start living as if they're in the promised land. But how do you practice the future rest in the wilderness? Well, God tells them that every seventh day they are to stop their work, or in Hebrew, to Shabbat, so that they can rest and enjoy God's good world. So take a whole day to live as if the ultimate rest has already come. Yeah, this is the Sabbath, celebrated every week on the seventh day. But there's more. The Sabbath is just one of seven festivals that Israel practiced every year, each one anticipating that seventh day rest. That is a lot of sevens. And there's even more. Every seven years, the Israelites were to liberate slaves, forgive debts, and let the land rest for a whole year. And then every seven times seven years was the ultimate seventh day rest, called the year of jubilee. If anyone had lost their land or gone into debt, all was forgiven, everything restored. Wow, so the Sabbath, these feasts, the year of jubilee, it's all pointing towards the hope of future rest. Right. Now, when the Israelites went into the land, they forgot their God, and so they forfeited their chance for rest in the promised land. They're exiled and enslaved again by an oppressive nation, led back into a world of chaos and disorder. But Israel's prophets said that their exile would end one day and that the ultimate jubilee of freedom and rest would come, but generations go by and they're still waiting. It's at this dark point in the story that Jesus appears and he launches his public mission on a Sabbath day. Yeah, he read aloud from the scroll of Isaiah saying that it was time for all captives and slaves to be released because this was the year of the Lord's favor. 
What did he mean, this is the year of the Lord's favor? He was talking about the ultimate jubilee. Also, Jesus is claiming that seventh-day rest would come through him. Right. He said that he was the Lord of the Sabbath, and he confronted disorder and darkness in all of its forms, liberating people from sickness, sin, even from death itself. Yet, Jesus was killed, so even his work was undone. Well, it seemed that way. But notice, Jesus timed his death to take place at the end of the week. His body rested in a tomb during the Sabbath, and on the eighth day, he rose from the dead. Oh wait, the eighth day? You mean the first day of a new week? Exactly. Jesus' resurrection was like the first day of a new creation, where God's light and life broke into the darkness. So because of the resurrection, we have hope in God's promise of future rest. But we're not there yet. It's like we're still in the wilderness, where we experience struggle and pain. But as we journey towards that ultimate seventh day, Jesus invites us to experience a taste of real rest now by following him. Or in his words, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Folks, that's what Sabbath was always designed to look like. It was always designed to be a picture of the rest that God has in store for us. But instead, the people of Israel missed it completely. There never was a year of Jubilee that was recognized. Even though the year of Jubilee came, they never observed the year of Jubilee. I can't give up my property. I can't let the land rest. I can't turn my slaves back out to freedom. Those who are indentured to me and they're working off their debt, I can't cancel that debt. My, my whole estate counts on it. And Israel was supposed to be an example to all the rest of the world through things like the year of Jubilee to show that God has a plan for rest for those who are his children, who love him, who follow him. But instead, they did take the seriousness of the command to observe the Sabbath, and they did implement that command. They didn't take it all the way out to the year of Jubilee. They didn't even usually do the seventh year of rest for the land, but they did observe the seventh day, the Sabbath. That's where we get Saturday, just so you guys can know. Sunday is not the Sabbath day. Sunday is the Lord's day. We gather together on Sunday because Sunday is the day of the Lord's resurrection. Just as it talked about in the video, Jesus came to life on the first day of a new week. His body rested on the Sabbath. The word Saturday is tied back linguistically to the word Sabbath. So many of us have, have thought for our whole lives, and I know I did for a long time in my life up until I got to seminary, I thought that Sunday was the Sabbath day. Now, often we observe Sunday as a Sabbath day, but the actual Sabbath day, if you are Jewish, is Saturday. And they decided, this is what the Lord has said. That is the seventh day. We will not work because you have passages like Exodus thirty-one fifteen. This is what the Lord says. You have to depend upon me and trust me and know that I am your Lord. And so Exodus 31, 15 says, six days shall work be done. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. Now listen.
listen, if you heard from the Lord, if the Lord spoke to Moses and Moses came and told us, anybody that does work on the Sabbath will be put to death, I guarantee you and I would put together a committee and a subcommittee and a team off of that subcommittee to determine what work is. Because we don't want anybody being put to death that ain't got to be put to death. That's what happened. Even today, if you were to look up the restrictions on the Orthodox Union's website, there are 39 different different categorizations for work. And within those 39 categorizations, there's at least three or four subcategories under each one. You can carry things, but you can't carry things to a certain weight. You can walk, but you can't walk so far. But if you walk so far and rest so long, then you can walk another distance of that same set of distance. You can light a fire, but you can't extinguish a fire. No, you can't light any fires. You can't extinguish any fire. You can't even press the button on the elevator because the light on the elevator button will glow, and that is technically lighting a fire in the Orthodox Union's eyes. Do you understand the level to which they have determined what is work on the Sabbath? You can't press the button to go up and down on an elevator. If you're ever in an area where there's a Jewish community, the elevator has a Sabbath mode where on Saturdays it will stop at every floor all the way up and all the way down. So if you do need to go somewhere on the Sabbath, you get in on whatever floor, ride it to the top, ride it all the way back down because you can't go down the steps because there's only so many amount of steps that you can take in that day. Now, did they enforce these rules in Jesus' time? Yes. Did they enforce them to the degree that they enforced them on Jesus? Absolutely not. They looked for any failure, any shortcoming that Jesus could have. There was a prescription for how you could heal or take people to get medical care on the Sabbath, but it had to be life-threatening. That's why they point out the man with the withered hand. Because this man has a disease. He ought to be healed, but it's not life-threatening. Therefore, it should not be done on the Sabbath. Jesus is flipping their understanding on its head because they've missed the whole point. And folks, I I just got to tell us, sometimes we do the same thing. We read a command or an instruction from God's word and we jump on that instruction and take it to the nth degree and add our own traditions to it and then begin to uphold our own traditions to the exclusion of what God really intended. Folks, it's not a good thing that the Pharisees were the people like you and me for the most part. The Pharisees were the people who were always at the temple. The Pharisees were the people trying to uphold the law. They were in church every Sunday. And somehow or another, they're always the butt of Jesus' jokes. The Pharisees are you and me. And you and I have traditions that we've done just like the Sabbath. And we missed the whole point. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for us, not us for the Sabbath. I think we do the same thing with different traditions along the lines of you got to be dressed up in a certain way. you got to come to Jesus, but you got to clean your life up in a certain way before you can come. you got to come to this assembly, and you got to match a certain type of person to be in this assembly before we'll accept you really. We'll let you sit here, but we won't let you be a part unless you fit in a certain category of life. And if you don't fit in that category, maybe there's another church for you. Maybe there's somebody else 
that'll accept you. Maybe go down and try biker church. You know, you just don't fit in God's house. This is a holy and sacred place. And we add extra meanings to what God has instructed us to do. We add extra restrictions and traditions, then uphold those and miss Jesus all together. Here's what Jesus has said. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Lay your yoke upon me and take on my rest. Jesus came, just as it said at the latter part of our verses today, to set the captives free. He's the one who would proclaim freedom and liberty and truth and grace to the Gentiles, to us. There's freedom found in Christ, not extra restrictions and extra laws and extra rules and regulations. But you and I, we are just as bad as the Pharisees. You and I turn people out for all sorts of unbiblical and ungodly reasons. And maybe it's not the same thing for all of us. But there's something that we grew up with and that we're used to that it doesn't say in Scripture. That if we see that in our church or in real life, we pounce on it just like the Pharisees. You know, we've talked before about what Malachi says about interracial marriages, about marrying somebody outside of your ethnicity, how God's command for that is not to marry outside of your religion, not to be unequally yoked. But how many of us in this room can help doing a double take when somebody is of one race and somebody is of another and they are together? There's, there's nothing in Scripture that says that those people should be condemned. And yet our first reaction is condemnation. Our first reaction is judgment. You let a white man and a black woman walk in here together, everybody in this congregation is going to turn their head. <gasps> For shame on us. Folks, it's pharisaical. We grow up with certain cultures and traditions and we do not examine those against Scripture. That's not the only one. It's just one of many examples. And what I'd love for us to do this morning is look at our own hearts. Where have we missed Jesus and applied our own tradition and upbringing and raising? Where have we become judgmental? Where have we become the people who are condemning folks? Where have we become the folks who have made 39 different categories for how to follow Jesus and three to four subcategories for every one of those categories? And if you don't match up to this picture, then you are not really a Christian. You are not really following Jesus. You can't follow Jesus and struggle with your language. You can't follow Jesus and struggle with lying. You can't follow Jesus and struggle with homosexuality. You can't follow Jesus and struggle. You got to put on your happy face. You got to put on the mask and you got to show up and look the right part. And if you don't, there's no grace and there's no mercy for you. I'm sorry you're not welcome in this place. Folks, if that is our heart, if that is our attitude, we are failing just as much as the Pharisees. Our call is to come alongside people who are struggling and fighting. As long as somebody is in the fight, I am fighting with them. If there is somebody who is struggling with homosexuality, if there is somebody who is struggling in a heterosexual relationship just to be faithful to their spouse or to be faithful to their boyfriend or girlfriend, but they're fighting against their sin, I'm always going to be on their side. The first time that they give up 
The first time that they say, you know what, this really isn't a sin. This God really doesn't have anything to say about this. God's okay with my sexual choices and preferences. God's okay with the fact that I'm a habitual liar. God's okay that I steal and skim off the top. God's okay with that. The moment that they make that shift, that's when there ought to be some action. Because that's what Scripture teaches us. To love people back into the kingdom. That's when you've chosen, I'm not going to fight to be like Christ. I'm going to redefine what is right and wrong for myself. But folks, we kick somebody out that's struggling at the drop of a hat. Yes, it's messier. It's uglier. It's harder. But it's what we're called to. Let's not make extra restrictions for the Sabbath that are not there. Because Matthew, on purpose, puts those verses. Chapter 11. Chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. The verses right before chapter 12, right before we talk about Jesus being Lord of the Sabbath, he says this to his disciples. We've said it in the video and once already, but come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle And lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Folks, the only way that I made it to the point of devoting my life to being a minister and following Jesus and being his servant is because people were bearing with me as I struggled. People didn't cast me out completely. People gave me a chance. They didn't add extra laws that weren't in Scripture on my burden. They reminded me that you take on Jesus' burden. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. They loved me in a way that was gentle and lowly in heart. And I ask this morning, when you think about how we conduct church, when you think about your own personal relationships, do you and I exemplify being gentle And lowly in heart. Or do we exemplify a pharisaical, self-righteous pride that says, I got it figured out. And I've made all this extra stuff right here. And if you don't look like this, you ain't in. Which one are we? Which one are you this morning? Folks, maybe you're here and you've heard your whole life that you got to straighten things up before you come to Jesus. I'm here to tell you, That's a lie. You come to Jesus and he will clean you up. He will fight the fight against sin with you and for you. He'll be on the front lines helping you to say no to what is wrong, helping you to say yes to what is of him. If you've never trusted in him, I promise these verses are true. He loves you. He died for you. And his burden is easy. And his yoke is light. He's gentle. And lowly in heart. And he wants you to be a part of his kingdom. Folks, I got a lot of things in my life that I got to work on. And one of them is this right here. I preach this today not to wag my finger at any one of you. But I have ways that I've been raised. I have traditions that have been instilled upon me. 
when I go to God's Word and I see the Pharisees, I see myself. And I see the way that I cut people short. And I judge people too quickly. And I want to add extra restrictions to them because I've been doing this my whole life and, and this is how you're supposed to be. And this I have no patience with people. And God, help us if that's who we are. And folks, I'm not wagging my finger at you. I'm begging for help on my own. Because that's me. Because I see those things and I struggle with those things. And I think this word this morning is to help us change our hearts together. So that we all become gentle and lowly in heart. And our first instinct is not judgment and condemnation. Our first instinct is love. Our first instinct is a gentleness. Is seeking to understand and directing people to the only one who could clean anybody up. It doesn't matter how many extra rules or restrictions we add. It doesn't matter how good we are at checking boxes. If we don't go to Jesus, there's not a one of us that's going to be clean enough to make it to heaven. He's the only one. He's the only way. So this morning, let us look to Him and ask Him to change our hearts and cleanse us of our self-righteousness. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You that You have patience even for wayward and pharisaical children like me. God, thank You that even though we all sin and we all fall short and we're all fighting our sin, that You are fighting the fight for us and with us. Thank You that Your yoke is easy and Your burden is light. Thank You that we can look forward to one day living in the fullness of Your rest. God, thank You for that rest that is on the way. Lord, help us to work hard six days. Help us to rest knowing that You are in control. Help us to love you and follow you. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, who has never taken on your easy yoke and your light burden, pray that you would move on their hearts this morning. For any of us who need a change of heart, need a renewed mind, I pray, Lord, that you would move on our hearts and cause us to repent and cause us to humble ourselves before you. We ask that during this time of response that you would move and that we, your children, would be obedient. We ask all these things in Jesus' name.